Hello and welcome to the Lampkin and Elm podcast. I'm your host Jason. Here at Lampkin and Elm we discuss classic horror, a little bit of sci-fi, a dabble of old school gaming that will definitely deal in spooky stuff, and just generally have a good time talking about uh, the state of physical media and just why the heck we like all this old fun and exciting stuff. So thank you for joining me. Today we'll be discussing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. It is celebrating its 50th year uh, in circulation and often replicated, never surpassed. But if you have uh, listened to the last couple of episodes in this new podcast, you know uh, I am a huge horror nerd, and I'm going to give some fun and exciting historical perspective. That's what we are all wanting to know, and I think we've talked. Everybody's talked about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a lot. So let's, you know, you got to have the history. The history is great. Uh, Texas, we're going to be talking about today, and I think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the definition of Texas. Let's take a concept. Let's make it bigger, brasher. Everything's bigger in Texas. And definitely the horror movie has to be because it made an impact. We definitely think of Texas a lot different than we did, say, 60, 70 years ago. It is now kind of a economic and political powerhouse. Kind of balances out uh, California in that sense. Uh, one leans a little more right, one leans a little more left, and they, they do a job of kind of balancing out the country. But before this, easily the 60s, uh, Texas's impact on our culture wasn't as uh, big as it is now. Uh, the 60s definitely were kind of a coming out party to uh texas obviously unfortunate events happened there in the early 60s but you gotta also think about the space race and a lot of money pouring into texas but if we're going to talk about the 60s we need to go back and talk about how you got to the 60s and any in uh, any history of this continent starts with the native americans and heck they've been in texas and everywhere obviously since uh, for a long time, and the West Texas, Eastern New Mexico Clovis people were some of the first uh, native groups that we can actually tell that uh, they were there because they left stuff. So super cool that uh, this area of the country that I live in, I am a New Mexican, uh, right next to Texas. I can go outside and look south and I can see it. And uh, it's, we share kind of a unique, uh, unique culture around here, and it would be remiss not to talk about uh, the Native Americans, because for thousands upon thousands of years, they were the uh, people that inhabited the area. Heck, the word Texas itself is from uh, Native American. You'll have to forgive me, my pronunciation will probably be terrible, but... Uh, Texas became Texas became Texas, and uh, we have our uh, indigenous tribes to thank for kind of seeing what uh, this area of the country is all about and how you could successfully live here. 
And uh, it wasn't until the 1500s till anyone European saw the area that we now know as Texas, and that was the Spaniards. Uh, the French made an effort to try and colonize the, the Caribbean coast, but it was mostly the Spaniards that uh, were the first inhabitants of Texas. And then, of course, it became part of Mexico. And then in the 1830s, the uh, Republic of Texas was formed as it uh, successfully broke itself off from Mexico. Uh, we all remember the Alamo, that being probably the... Uh, biggest thing, culturally speaking, that uh, most Americans know about Tex the Texas independence movement. And for a long time, they were by themselves, and then they joined the, Uni the United States and uh, came in as a slave state, unfortunately. And they seceded from the Union and lost. There were Texas-fielded regiments in every major uh, Civil War battle, but they were more of a pass-through state for supplies and all that fun stuff because United States, the Union blockade was so effective at stopping shipping coming in that they kind of had to run everything through Texas, then sneak it over, and all that stuff would go to Louisiana and then off to wherever it needed to be. After the Confederacy lost, uh, restoration and reconstruction happened, and Texas definitely started to uh, thrive after that, and uh, a lot of European immigration happened. Uh, lots of Czechs, lots of Germans. Uh, if you've ever been to the San Antonio area, you know of New, you've probably heard of New Braunfels and the Schlitterbahn, which is exceedingly German, and all those wonderful beers that they have around there, like Scheinerbach. Uh, those are all Czech, Bohemian, and German. And uh, if you didn't know much about the history of beer in America, just a real quick one is most of it is German and uh, Czech based. Budweiser is came from an area called Butweis in the Czech, now the Czech Republic. So, fun fact of the day, you learn that most American beer, at least the classic American lager type of beer, you know, your Budweiser, your Coors, your Miller, those are all Germans, uh, which is, and it's funny because in Mexico, same thing happened. All those loggers were by German immigrants down there. So next time you're breaking open a cold one on a hot Texas day, you got to understand that some German guys came and made some pretty good dang beers. So I may be digressing a little bit in beer, but it does actually have a something to do with the next idea and the next topics of how Texas became such a big place and Budweiser was very effective at getting their their beer across the West because they understood that uh, you needed ice to make them beers stay fresh. And so you, they, they created a railroad network of ice houses and stuff like that. And the desert Southwest, the Sun Belt and the desert Southwest would be nothing without uh, the next evolution in keeping things cool, which is air conditioning lived in New Mexico, the high deserts of New Mexico for most of my life. None of this would be around if air conditioning didn't become commonplace. So by the time 
Reconstruction ended and the Gilded Age of America, late Victorian uh, 1800s came about, Texas was already on its way to becoming a a big state. Uh, Cattle, Texas Longhorns, uh, were a huge, huge part of the economy back then. And uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area still is famous for the stockyards, barbecue, all that fun, beefy business. And by the turn of the century, industry was moving there. There was a hurricane in the early 1900s, and Galveston Bay was destroyed, and Houston became a major port and is now one of the uh, one of the world's biggest ports. Uh, fourth, I think it's the fourth largest city in America. And it's just uh, Texas be- is becoming a epicenter in the central part of the country, but it has access to water. And the biggest thing that would happen next is, unfortunately, World War, World Wars One and Two. Not to mention the nasty dust bowl of the 1930s due to over uh, over planting and over using this, the land of the plains. Definitely had a huge effect on Texas, with the especially with the outbreak of World War Two. A lot of military presence beca- uh, was put into. Texas, and that it's that's where it remains. There's large, large military bases in West Texas, Central Texas, everywhere. Air Force bases, Army, they've got it all. And with military contracts, you get military money, and you get federal spending on infrastructure to get all those uh, materials, men to the East or the West, Germany or Japan, and. Texas was off like the proverbial rocket that would definitely play a huge role in Texas's second part of the 20th century. Uh, unfortunately, uh, tragedy, of course, happened again, and Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Texan, took, took over the presidency, and he made sure Texas was going to be a part of the space race. We've all, especially us 90s kids, We've heard the term, Houston, we have a problem. That's because NASA is based in Houston. They, they launch from Cape Canaveral and Vandenberg in California. But for the most part, all their head, their headquarters is in Houston. So uh, you combine that with, you know, that was the most expensive project ever in humanity. So definitely a lot of money came into Houston. So by the end of the sixties, there was all this money laying around Texas. And while economically and politically, they're now a tour de force culturally, the movie scene in Texas was basically, let's make a bunch of Westerns. And that's about it. But by the early 70s, there were people with enough disposable income, or at least what we would call nowadays venture capitalism, looking for talent in the uh, central part of Texas. And lo and behold, Toby Hooper was very receptive to making movies and had a experience of wanting to make a more raw and real movie. And we all know that he is the 
progenitor of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We do have to digress a little bit, and we have to go to Wisconsin, of all places, to talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because there was a uh, person in Wisconsin in the 40s and 50s that had a huge impact on horror in general. He, This person would be the basis for many a horror antagonist, and his name is Ed Gein. And if you don't know about Ed Gein, the biggest thing you need to know was that he was a, uh, his nickname of many was the Butcher of Plainfield, and he would, he started off by robbing graves and using body parts for his own ends we will just stay to keep it uh to keep it nice but uh he would some of the lesser things he would do is he'd use human remains to make uh decorations for his house uh he had a he had some mommy issues he had some parental issues and he started killing people after he kind of ran out of graves to steal and he was eventually caught and he was the basis for Leatherface and the family that is involved in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And of course, everyone's favorite, Norman Bates. Mommy issues, dead bodies, all that cheery stuff. But this is probably the only time Wisconsin and Texas can be lumped together culturally. Uh, And so the Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Uh, came out of Texas, and Alfred Hitchcock, of course, made Psycho. But going back to Toby Hooper, he was a uh, he was kind of an older guy in the Austin movie scene by the late '60s and early '70s. You know, one of those grandpa types that was 29 instead of 20. But he shot a guerrilla style of movie in a documentary form. And it was going to be in the vein of Night of the Living Dead. It's going to be... That horror is not in a a gothic cathedral. Not out in an eerie bog. It is the neighbors next door are crazy. And don't go knocking on strange people's doors. That is basically the story of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not to mention those... Germanic Czech roots with the Hansel and Gretel idea of knocking on some bad person's door, you get yourself Leatherface and all that fun. And while it can be, it is a, you know, obviously it is a shocking movie, but it, uh, I do not mean to say it's a simple movie by any means because the sum of the parts of it make it such a impactful film on. Uh, on film in general, not just horror, the way it was shot, thinking about our discussions on Night of the Living Dead, it was shot in a very, you know, that black and white news-ish style way. Same thing with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was a bunch of his friends out in the middle of the Texas Hill Country. I think the house is around Round Rock, which is in around San Antonio, I believe, and... They shot this movie on the cheap. It was hot as heck in the summer, going back to that air conditioning business. this The house they used was an old Victorian that had fallen on far, uh, hard times, so they could kind of just tear it up as they saw, even if they may not have had all that permission. But it became a 
a way of making a movie that is, I think today with the advent of streaming service such as YouTube, where kids with a camera can go and make a movie. And that's what that was. Kids with cameras and a little bit of know-how and uh, an idea that they thought made sense went out and shot a movie. It was one of those standard, low-budget shoots from hell. It was hot in the summer. The stars were also their own makeup and wardrobe type of thing. It was very, very low budget. Uh, whatever they had to spend, they ha obviously had to create a environment that was shocking. And they did by amping up the creepiness of it. That The chicken room in that house, just the cast of characters that are the family of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre are very off-putting and the movie just is a exercise in dread. Dread could be a character in that movie because we all know that these kids are done and they are dumb and they are going to get killed because they are not minding their own business. They are not heeding the warnings of people in the area and they end up creating or they being Hooper and his team create like the archetype of the slasher crazy guy with a weapon chases teenagers and early 20 somethings. We all see it coming because we are uh, the audience and we have that third person perspective, but you're just unfortunately they are you're on a train track and you can't do anything about it but just react and that is a huge huge part of the texas chainsaw massacre you're just there reacting you're not getting you can't leave you're sitting in your seat in the movie theater and this is just coming at you and going back to that documentary style there's quick cuts there's like one sixth of a second frames. It's just a very well edited movie to where that builds up the tension. And everybody always says it's a very bloody and gory movie, but all things considered, there's not a lot of, bo of body horror gore in it. Uh, the biggest uh, scene I can remember uh, off the top of my head by just, you know, picturing it in my mind is when the, the first girl gets put up on a meat hook and you don't see any of that. It's all, it's all in your mind. It's just like Scarface. Everybody says Scarface is this violent, bloody movie and hey, another chainsaw scene. But what do you really see in either the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Scarface? You just see flash cuts. You see people's facial reactions you see a little bit of blood being spurt because obviously if you're going after somebody with a chainsaw, there's going to be some damage. But for the most part, it's not as violent as people make it out to be. It's more so that the idea of somebody had the balls to put this on film, take it seriously, and m even worse for all those curmudgeons, made a serious movie. And... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is 
considered one of the greatest horror movies ever and it has it was lauded at Cannes Cannes Film Festival in France what part of, especially in the 70s what part of American culture would you think that the French would like I guarantee you it was not a horror movie from the state of Texas so it's just you cannot deny how important the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. It created a genre, genre, a the slasher. And while some say may say that it's been done better, it hasn't been done as effectively since the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's because it was a group of people at the right time, at the right place, in the right situation. On And the beautiful thing about the best movies, some of the best sci-fi and horror are made on a budget. If you don't have money, you have to improvise and you have to think and you have to create. That's why the original Star Wars is going to be better than any Star Wars that will come out. Because he didn't have a lot of money. Lucas didn't have a ton of money back then he they had to think through problems and now movies have the benefit and the deterrent detriment of oh. unlimited budget uh, uh computer special effects rather than how do we invent this process and what star wars is to space opera sci-fi-ish uh adventure movies the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is to horror. It took what worked in the Night of the Living Dead and put, put it up to 11. And that's the Texas way, as we've come to understand. Bigger, faster, more violent, more tense, and you get the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's funny because while... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre was definitely inspired by Night of the Living Dead. George Romero, for his next zombie endeavor in 1978's Dawn of the Dead, definitely didn't try to one-up everybody or uh, stay at the cutting edge of creature effects. They have good creature effects, but they also have uh, bad, cre uh, bad effects in that all the zombies are painted blue. It was... Um, Tom Savini's one of his first movies, so he gets a pass. He had excellent, uh, excellent practical effects with explosions and some gore and stuff like that. But Romero went with satire and speaking about the consumerism that was catching on in the 70s across America and our once thriving mall culture and business model really, really hit its, uh, hit its stride in the 70s and it, of course, would peak in the 80s. But in the 70s, those big, brown, beautiful malls with all those waterfalls and, and plants... Uh, that's what Romero went after instead of trying to keep up with the Joneses. He really didn't even, he didn't keep up with the Joneses until Day of the Dead. And a lot of people will say Day of the Dead suffers from more focus on gore than, uh, character development. But I think Romero had that idea of the world is just devolved into the only the, 
only the horrible people are left and you got to deal with them and you don't you're not going to like anyone because those are the people that survive but we digress going back to Hooper he he was not, this was not a flash in the pan he went on to make some insanely good movies uh Poltergeist I know everybody says that Spielberg secretly directed it and of course Spielberg is going to have a heavy hand in anything he does because he is one of the best at what he does, especially by the 80s. He was in his peak Spielbergian in 1981, 1982. So he definitely had his DNA's there. It is the wholesome family movie with a bunch of ghosts. and But Hooper definitely, uh, his presence is felt on that movie because... It's the ghost movies were not that shocking and raw uh, up until then, or the effects were insane, and he had the ability to use them effectively. Then, of course, we can't talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre without talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And it's funny because we earlier spoke about Dawn of the Dead being satirical of what was happening in horror and pop in popular culture at the time. And that's exactly what he did for the second one. And it's a heck it's practically a comedy at certain points, or at least a uh, comedy horror movie. And it became a, it was aping itself and playing on the idea of like this burn, uh, this, idea has been done to death so we got to do something different and it definitely is different any movie that has a chainsaw sword fight is uh definitely going to be called different the texas chainsaw massacre is one of those pre-movies and post-movies things were different before it came out and going back to the uh, the idea of texas texas's ascendance into economic political and popular culture this is the point where everybody knows texas it's not the chainsaw massacre it's the texas chainsaw massacre by the end of the decade you'd have shows like dallas showing off the rich side of dallas and uh the drama of that and it just kept it just kept rising and we are definitely living in especially in the west uh, especially in New Mexico, Colorado, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, all of these states, we have a noisy neighbor that we have to deal with. And just like uh, New York in the east, Illinois in the central part, and California out west, you just kind of have to realize that there's... Uh, you're not always going to agree with them, but you try and find the good in them. And uh, as a New Mexican, we definitely, uh, they help us economically and uh, we help them economically. And it's not exactly an easy relationship sometimes, but we, we've managed, I guess. And how could I forget the Dallas Cowboys? By, that, the, by this point, the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s were a big deal. Tom Landry... Uh, they won a couple of Super Bowls, they lost a couple of Super Bowls, but they were America's team by that point, and Texas Stadium had a hole in the roof so God could see his favorite team play on Sundays. So, 
Uh, Texas by the 70s was a major player in American culture. And uh, it has not relinquished that uh, throne. How many cowboy movies, how many neo-westerns are are shot and filmed here? It's crazy to say that No Country for Old Men wouldn't be here today if the Texas Chainsaw Massacre didn't happen. But that's there's some truth into that because Texas became a player in movies and you go into the 80s and you go in, uh, with Hooper still being a presence in Texas cinema and by the 90s you have the movies such as Dazed and Confused being a, that's a movie shot in Texas it's a, in Austin and of course a large part of uh, Ron Howard's Apollo 13 is shot there in Texas because of Houston. Same with uh, From the Earth to the Moon. If you've never seen that, super awesome miniseries. Kind of like the precursor, the blueprint for your Pacifics and Bland Brothers of the world. But now, Austin is a huge scene culturally. Uh, if you live in this area, you know of Alamo Draft Houses, a movie theater that serves beer and food it's and you know think about that first part of that name is alamo so texas has now become a huge player in the cultural zeitgeist and lots of movies are shot here and guess what the texas chainsaw massacre helped make all that happen just this little i think it was a forty thousand dollar movie this little horror movie about a crazy guy in a mask made of human flesh based off a crazy guy in Wisconsin became a cultural icon. And most people will tell you that they've either seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or they don't want to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because of just its presence. And it's like that it's that. Ooh, that dirty movie that is grimy and gritty and shows all this blood and gore. So regardless of if you've seen it or you've not, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of those, one of, you know, the old saying, no, no good or no press is bad press. The, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has press uh, written about it to this day. And... Uh, I don't know why you would listen to me ramble on about it for 30 minutes if you haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it, see it however you can. I would recommend, if you're a, a nerdy history guy uh, like me, get on Shutter, go to the last drive-in and watch it with Joe Bob Briggs and uh, Darcy the Mail Girl and he gives a ton of perspective on it. He is a proud Texan. He is a film critic and he says that it's the greatest movie ever created and in his sphere, in in his wheelhouse and what he covers that's a pretty good argument because it's just so it changed everything. We would not have Halloween. We would not have Jason Voorhees, Freddy, any number of ripoffs and copycats and all that fun. The 80s slasher boom would not have happened. And we all have Texas to thank for that. And Texas, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the product of where it was created, which was Texas. So, uh, I guess if you want to 
stop what you're doing right now. Go get yourself a Shiner Bock, some beef brisket, and watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a pretty good way to spend an evening. On that note, I think this has come to the end of this fun and exciting episode about Texas, its rise, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm sure I missed things. I'm sure I didn't cover things in uh, detail that a lot of people would think. A lot of this stuff is deep-dived already, so... I encourage you to go watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre any way you can. I recently picked it up on 4K because it was on sale at Best Buy and it was in an awesome steelbook that looks like the original poster and it's super pretty uh, physically. And you pop that movie in and it is it holds up well. Film is film and it looks stunning. But if you can only find it on DVD or tape or on streaming, go watch it right now. If you haven't seen it in a few years, because it's one of those movies that it's not the easiest movie to watch. It's not exactly like, you know, like comedies you can kind of just pop in and watch and it doesn't matter. You got to you got to sit down and uh, watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it's an art house movie at uh, at its core. And it's an art house movie that involves uh, some definite, we shall say, mature tones and uh, lots of frenetic action and lots of craziness and just give it a watch any way you can. And I want to thank you all for listening to me ramble on about it for the past half hour and I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I will always say, hey, give me some feedback. I This show will grow and change and evolve and... I definitely would love to hear people's thoughts on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the state of Texas if we're, because we talked a lot about Texas history or just whatever in general. So drop me a line, uh, Instagram me at Showtime Video, and we can talk Texas and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre if you'd like. So, as always, thank you so much for listening. And I want to thank Jared Van Natta. He produces this ridiculous business, and he has helped me immensely on figuring out what the heck to talk about, how to talk about it, and how to effectively communicate. So a lot of this is very much because I've been guided by an awesome human being. So thank you, as always, Jared. And you all have a wonderful evening, and I will see you on the next episode. I think it might be about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's about to come out on 4K Blu-ray, so it's pretty exciting. You all have a wonderful evening, and thank you for listening.